It's great to be up here again to share the next installment of our series, A Blazing Grace, another look at the Old Testament story. Um, You've been seeing a fair bit of myself and Pastor Daniel over the last four, five weeks or so, and that's because Pastor David Ashwick has been over in the United States of America, and he's been preaching and visiting family and all sorts of things, and he's back this week, and he'll be preaching next weekend. So if you've been wondering where the other pastor is, that's where where he's been. been. Um, Today what we're doing, we're, we're going to have a closer examination of the Mount Sinai story, okay? Last, um, last week, Daniel preached on Mount Sinai, and he examined and went through and unpacked the Ten Commandments, which were spoken by God from the mountain. However, if you've ever read the story, you'll know that that's only one aspect of what takes place on Mount Sinai. In fact, Moses continues to go up and down, up and down, up and down the mountain, and there's a whole huge range of important lessons that we can learn from these experiences. And I want to be bold this morning and suggest that the lesson that we're going to finish up on at the end of this message is one of the most important lessons that we can know, that we can learn as a follower of Christ. It's something that's simple, but if we can get out, wrap our minds around it, it is the secret to living a growing, transforming, vibrant Christian experience. So that's sort of where we are heading. And the title of my message this morning is The Mountain of Grace. So often we think, well, a lot of people, they think Old Testament, they think of this this big powerful God that's all about His law. And then you get to the New Testament and people think that the New Testament God is is a God of grace. And they get this separation. And especially when it comes to Mount Sinai, a lot of people think that's where God is all about justice and His law. But what I want to reveal to you this morning is that at Mount Sinai, what we reveal is some of the most clearest and most powerful revelations of God's infinite and wonderful grace for us. So we find ourselves in the heart of one of the most epic stories of the Old Testament in Mount Sinai. And the people are gathered around the mountain. And you see up on the I don't know exactly what Mount Sinai looks like, but maybe you can imagine something like what we have there on our banner up the front. And it's not just, at this stage, it's not just a regular mountain, but the mountain is ablaze with fire, and it says that there was smoke billowing out of the mountain, and it's trembling, and there's this divine trumpet that's just sounding out over the valley. And God descends upon the mountain, and He's covering Himself in this thick, terrifying darkness. And the Israelites, they gather around this mountain, mountain, and they're waiting to hear a word from God Himself. And many times when God communicates, communicates to His people, He shares it first with Moses, and then He gets Moses to share it with the rest of them. But here, God, He doesn't want to be any people thinking, maybe Moses forgot something, or maybe he misunderstood or he mis kind of like Chinese whispers, how it sort of changes as it goes along from person to person to person. God wanted every person to know that, um, that this is him speaking and to have no mistakes about what he is sharing. And he gets up there and God speaks with the people in a way that is somewhat terrifying but intensely personal. And he declares to them 
His law of love. And last week, uh, Pastor Daniel unpacked those 10 great principles, those 10 great enduring principles of God's law of love, which really come from the very heart of who God is, His character. And so after that, the people, they shrink back and they say, God, they say to Moses, don't let God speak to us anymore. It's too terrifying. He's too powerful. Moses, you go and speak to God and then you just tell us what He says. So they shrink back in fear, and Moses approaches what it describes as the thick darkness. And he goes and he spends time with God. And when he's there with God, God starts to reveal a collection of instructions. And what these instructions are, they are God's law of love, his ten principles, then applied to their situation as a bunch of wandering people through the wilderness. What do these instructions look like in real life? For these people in this culture, in this setting, in this situation. Now after that, Moses gets all these instructions and he walks back down the mountain and he gathers all the people together again and and he declares them all the words that God has said and the people declare that they agree to the terms of the covenant. And they say to God, they say, all that you have instructed us, we will do. Is that a pretty bold statement? All of your law, God, all of your instructions, we commit ourselves to being faithful to that. And afterwards, we see Moses. He goes back up onto the mountain again. And this time, to receive the two tablets which which God has created and God has written with his very finger, the the ten great principles of God's law on those tablets, and and Moses goes back up on the mountain to, to get those from God. And he's up there, and it says that he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine being in the presence, this intimate, wild presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights? And at the end of it, you can just imagine that this is is an incredible mountaintop experience that Moses is having. God has taken on this huge journey from, remember the burning bush in the wilderness, to going and confronting Pharaoh, to the plagues, to taking him through the Red Sea. It's, this, it's all building up to this incredible climax. And Moses must be just so filled with just this incredible sense that God is doing something amazing and God is going to get them through and, and, and God is being true to all of his promises. And in the midst of that, when, God, when Moses has just received those Ten Commandments, God has something bad to say to Moses. And this is what he says. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7. So we see here Moses is on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's communing, he's talking with, he's communicating with God himself, and he's just filled with just thrilled with what God has done, and this is what God says to him. Verse 7, Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out, up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Hasn't been very long. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. 
and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Israel, of Egypt, sorry. That's pretty intense, blasphemous, commandment-breaking stuff going on here. Um, Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This is a stubborn, rebellious people. Verse 10, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Suddenly, from this great build-up from the burning bush to Moses, the plagues through the Red Sea up to Mount Sinai, they received the, the law, they covenant to be faithful to God, they're heading towards the promised land. Suddenly, Moses gets this message that God says, Moses, it's done. These people that you've labored, labored for, that I've labored for, they've rebelled against me. They've broken the covenant, and we're just going to have to start again, Moses. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them all. And we're gonna, you're going to be my man now. You're going to be my new Abraham. And we're going to go and start a nation with you, Moses, because you are faithful with me up on this mountain. And they're a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious people. It's all over. Let's see what Moses says in response to this. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? God, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? So Moses is saying, the nation is going to see this and they're going to think, God is this evil person. He made this great miracle. He brought his people out only to destroy them and nuke them in the, in the wilderness. That's not going to look very good for you, God. It goes on um, halfway through verse 12. Turn from your burning anger, God, and relent from the disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give it to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses here is pleading on behalf of his people, and he's saying, God, remember your promise that you made to Abraham. Remember your covenant. Remember that, that you have set these people aside for this great work, to be a light, to, to become a, na- a blessing to the nations. Remember this, God. Turn away from this, this, this anger, this wrath of yours, and forgive, forgive your people. So what does God do? Verse 14, it says, And the Lord relented from from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The Lord relented from the disaster. At this stage, the Israelites, they have no idea that this is going on. They're just busy in their rebellion. They're busy in their um, idolatry, in their law-breaking, in their sin. They're not repented at this stage, yet what they don't realize is they have someone in the very presence of God who is pleading their case on their behalf. What would happen if Moses wasn't there to plead their case? 
Would that have been the end of the Israelite people? What a blessing it is to have someone who have, has access to the very presence of God who will plead your case on your behalf. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a Moses? Well, maybe we do have a Moses. What I want you to do is, we've got a couple of verses here. You can read them on the screen. Here's a couple of verses where we see a similarity between Jesus and Moses here on Mount Sinai. It says, here we have, when they came to the place called the skull, they, were crucif- they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. So here we see Jesus is, has just been crucified on the cross and he's looking out upon those very people that, have murdered, uh, that are murdering him, that are torturing him, that have put the nails through his hands, the crown of thorn upon his, upon his head. He's looking out at them. Are they repentant? Not at this stage, they're not. And Jesus looks out at them and he says, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Another example, jump back a chapter to Luke chapter 22. Here we see Simon, Peter is in a conversation with Jesus just in the lead up to the, to the, to the, um, to the cross. And Jesus knows that Satan is going to attack um, Peter and tempt him. And he's going to fall away and he's going to um, betray Jesus three times. And this is what, what it says. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Imagine if Satan demanded to have you. But then it says, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What sort of a heart does Jesus have for us? Jesus has an intercessory heart. The word to intercede simply means to intervene on behalf of someone, to step into their situation and to plead their case on their behalf. And here we see, just like Moses and just like Jesus here, Jesus has this intercessory heart and he's pleading for us. Romans chapter 8 verse 34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, Jesus loves us so much that he came and he died for us upon the cross. More than that, that's not all. You know, Jesus on the cross isn't all that Jesus does for us. It says, more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We have a Moses who is in the very presence of God, pleading our case, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus has an intercessory heart. So we continue on the story, and Moses, um, Moses, he, he gets God's relents, or some, the King James says he repents. You don't think of God repenting, but here it says God repents, so he relents from the disaster he was going to bring upon the Israelites. And Moses gets those ten, those, those ten commandments, the, the tablets of the covenant, and he starts hiking back down Mount Sinai. And as he gets down, he makes a fairly terrifying discovery. And we find this in Exodus chapter 32 and verse 15. It says, 
Then Moses in turn and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Could, could God make a more powerful symbol about the importance and the enduring nature of his law than writing them with his own finger upon pieces of rock? That's a pretty strong symbolism that we see. So Moses has this. Keep going down. Verse 17. When Joshua, so they're walking down the mountain. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. He hears this, this shouting and this, this racket coming from the Israelite camp. Moses says, there's, there must be war. Quickly, we need to get down there. And Moses listens. Verse 18, but he said, it is not the, the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and gathered it and ground it to powder and scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Things suddenly have got a little bit terrifying for the Israelites here. During, it's amazing how quickly you can be filled with fear. I was watching during, during the week um, the, the, grand, the final of the surfing over in J-Bay. I'm not sure if you've probably seen that on TV. Uh, Mick Fanning, he was out there paddling. I'm just watching this. And suddenly, this fin pops up behind him. I'm sure most, probably a few of you might have even seen this live as well. Um, this fin pops up behind Mick Fanning, the surfer. And suddenly, you should have seen how quickly his face went from just enjoying himself and involved in this thing to suddenly being filled with this like intense fear. It was just instantaneous. And that's almost what I see taking place here. These people, they're, they're dancing and they're singing and they're, race, and they're, and they're um, walking around this, this golden calf and they're saying, here, worship the calf who brought us out of Egypt. And suddenly, they see Moses emerge from the darkness of, of that's, that's enveloping Mount Sinai. And suddenly, they are filled with this instantaneous and Moses gets those tablets and he smashes them on the ground, which is symbolic of the fact that, that they had broken the law, they had broken the covenant with God. And Moses gets that, gets that golden calf and he puts it in the fire and he crushes it up and he puts it in the water and he makes them drink it. Okay, Moses was no pushover. This is, this is pretty intense. And, and what we realize when we see this is Moses suddenly begins to is instantly overwhelmed with the, the size of the great sin that the people have committed in doing this. Because remember, God had relented from the disaster he was going to bring upon them, but suddenly Moses is filled with a, this is much worse than I expected. So what does Moses do? Well, Moses goes back up the mountain. Let's read verse 30. So Exodus chapter um, 32 and verse 30. It says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and, I, and now I will go up to the Lord, back up Mount Sinai, and perhaps I can make atonement for you. Perhaps. Where's Moses' confidence here? 
perhaps there's forgiveness for you. This has been so massive. And he says, but I'm going to go there and I'm going to try and find, make atonement for you. Now, atonement is a pretty big word. And let me explain this word to you. The word is made up of three parts. And quite simply, atonement is at one mint. Okay? Atonement is the at one mint. It's the process of becoming one again. Now, God was dwelling with his people. He was leading his people. And because of this, sin, this great sin, had broken the covenant, had broken that connection, broken that relationship with God. And Moses is seeking atonement. Moses is going up to seek a restoration of that relationship that has been broken. Verse 31. So Moses goes up to God and says, so, so verse 31, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive them, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses says, Forgive them of their sin, God, but I understand that it's a, it's pretty massive sin, and that's probably a pretty big ask of you. So, if you won't forgive their sin, blot me out of your book in order to bring atonement for these people. Now, what is this book that Moses is referring to? The book of life is a book that we, we find a little, throughout the Bible, it, references to it, but in the book of Revelation, we have the clearest sort of description of what this book of life is. Here we see in Revelation 20, verse 15, it says, And yet, if anyone's name was not written in the books of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So here we see the, the final destruction of sin and of people who are unwilling to, to receive God's forgiveness and salvation. We see that they're destroyed in the lake of fire. And if their names are written in the book of life, they're the people that have safety from that. This is their get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak. This is the book of life. If you go across to Revelation chapter 21, speaking of the, the new Jerusalem, the, the, the eternal kingdom that God is going to establish, the new earth, and it says, But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How important is it to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life? means everything. That's your salvation. That's your ticket to heaven. That's your ticket to the new earth. That's your ticket to eternity. And here we see a picture of Jesus emerging on right there on top of Mount Sinai. We see that these people had this great sin, but Moses says, God, please forgive them, but if you will not forgive them, I will take their place. Scratch my name out of the book of life. And that's, that's, an, that's an eternal thing that he's asking there. Take away my salvation. Take away my eternity. Take away all hope that I have in order to give it to them. Could there be a clearer picture of what Jesus did for us upon the cross? On the cross, Jesus says, These people have sinned, but scratch me out of the book of life. I will take their place. I will take their punishment. I will take the consequences of sin. And I will do this in order to bring about atonement. 
Jesus has an intercessory heart. And Jesus has an, a self-sacrificing heart. Jesus would rather put himself, he would rather die upon the cross than to live eternity without us. And here we see Moses making those same sorts of, reflecting that same sort of self-sacrificing heart that Jesus has right there on the mountain. But God says this to Moses in verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. In other words, Moses, that is a beautiful thing that you're requesting, but it's not your job to bear the sins of these people. In fact, Jesus is the one who's going to, to do that. But it goes, verse, verse 34, it says, But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. And it, um, God goes on, and basically God says after this, he says, Moses, as a result of your intercession for, on behalf of your people, I'm not going to destroy them. And they're going to go on into the promised land still. And God says, I'm going to send an angel, and this angel is going to go before them, and this angel is going to um, fight these battles for them, and they're going to make it into the, into the promised land. But there's one disclaimer that God gives. He says, but I will not go up with you. Because if I go up amongst these rebellious, stubborn people, my presence will actually consume them. And Moses is, oh, he's, he goes down and he tells the people and the people will start mourning that God is no longer going to go with us. What's going to happen here? And we don't want to go ahead if, Moses, if God's not going with us. And so what Moses does is he gets a tent and he pictures this tent right outside the camp, like a long way away from the camp. And Moses goes there regularly to talk with God. And every time he goes in there, the, the pillar of cloud comes down upon that tent and Moses is in there communicating with God. And it's away from the camp, kind of symbolizing the fact that God is no longer in his fullness of presence like it was before, dwelling in the tent. And you might be wondering, what is Moses going to the tent? What is he talking with God about? Well, the thing that we see straight after it describes that Moses continues to intervene. Moses continues to intercede for his people and plead with them, God, we need your forgiveness. We need your, your love. Let's read Exodus verse 33, chapter 33, verse 13 to 14. Here we see Moses in this, this tent, speaking to God, again, pleading that God will bring full forgiveness and full atonement for his people. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know that know you in order that to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And God said, he said, Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses perseveres with God. He, in interceding, he continues to go back to God, back to God, back to God, back to God. And at the end, Jesus says, All right, Moses, I will go with you. My full presence will go with you, and I will lead you into the promised land. And that's a picture of Jesus. Jesus has an intercessory heart, a self-sacrificing heart, and a persevering heart. He perseveres for us, and he perseveres with us. 
Now, Moses is there contemplating the task now that's ahead of him. And he's thinking of the fact that he is now going to lead these people out into the, in, into the promised land. God's with them. And it's, it's almost like Moses gets this, this sense that he needs more strength for this, for this mission, to lead these people. He needs a greater sense of assurance that God is really going to be with them. He needs a deeper connection with God in order to, 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 to help him to have the, everything he needs to effectively do this task. And so what Moses does is Moses makes a request of God that is one of the boldest requ- requests that we find in all of Scripture, and we find it in Exodus 33 and verse 18. This is just after God had promised to go with them. Moses feeling a sense of his, a deeper, of, of a deeper strengthening from God, a deeper connection, deeper assurance. And he says, verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory, God. Hasn't Moses already seen God's glory? If we jump back to Exodus 24, we've got on the screen, it says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it in, for six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Moses, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Had Moses experienced God's glory already? Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain with God's glory. So what is Moses asking for? I believe that when Moses is asking this, he's asking for an even deeper experience with God, an even richer understanding of God's glory to an extent that he has not yet experienced before. All the times previous to this, God had always showed up with his glory, but he always veiled it. In the burning bush, it was veiled behind the fire. On the mountain, it was veiled by the, by the clouds and the darkness and the, and, the, and the smoke. But Moses says, God, I want to experience the fullness of your glory. And when I think about that, it makes me think of my own life. And so often, it's easy to become content with our experience with God. In the past, when we're getting to know Jesus for the um, and it was all new and fresh. We were, we were taking leaps and bounds and experiencing new things with God. But it's very easy to get to the point where suddenly we've been on this journey for a while and we stop taking those deeper steps into getting to experience God. And I think that a lesson that comes out from here is that, like Moses, regardless of what our experience has been in the past, we should always be seeking an even deeper experience. What we've experienced is only one drop in the ocean, one piece of sand on the seashore, God is infinite and amazing and majestic, and whatever experience that we have, God always has much, much, much more, infinitely more for us yet to experience. And so Moses says, God, show me your glory. And in response, God says in verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Imagine that. All of God's goodness, the full package is going to come down on that mountain and pass before Moses. 
However, verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock, and where my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until you have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. In other words, God says, I'm going to come down with all my goodness, but it's going to be so glorious that if you saw me face to face, you would just cease to exist. You would just die in an instant. And so God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to place you in this crack in the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. And then as I pass by, after I pass by, I'm going to take my hand off and you're going to see just a little tiny bit of my back. But it's going to be awesome. And Moses is like, all right, let's, let's do this. And so, God shows up, and we find this in verse, oh, chapter 34, verse 5. Moses is up there. You can imagine the sort of, the excitement that must have, Moses must have had with this experience. Can you imagine if God came to you and said, Roz, I'm going to pass, show you all of my goodness in one moment. That'd be a little bit daunting, yet pretty exciting as well. So Moses goes back up that mountain, and he's there waiting to see the glory of God. Verse 5, chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. I just love those words. And stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him as he promised and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving, um, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will, who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children on the third and fourth generation. Now, the thing that is surprising when we read here all up to this point, God's glory has been displayed through trumpets and fire and earthquakes and all these sorts of things. But here where we get the, the largest revelation of who God is, we see God shows up and instead of making this incredible display of power and this light show, which no doubt there was that as well, the only thing it describes when this happens is that God came down and declared to Moses his character. Remember the request that Moses made. God, show me your glory. And, Jesus, and God says, okay, Moses, I'll show you all of my glory, all of my goodness. And he comes down and he says, he just speaks about his character. What does that teach us about the glory of God? It teaches us that God's glory, the centerpiece of God's glory, is his character. And what is that character that's the centerpiece of God's glory? Let's look at it again. Verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. What an awesome thing to know after you've just had the, the golden calf incident, that God is first and foremost a God who is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. He's a patient God. Even though you rebel against him and make mistakes over and over and over again, God is patient there with us. 
and abounding in steadfast love. It's like this overflowing love that God has for his people. And faithfulness, he's a God of faithfulness. Verse 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands. This is persevering love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Well, I'm glad that's in there for my own experience. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is a God of justice. And it's interesting to note that while God is a God of justice, before he mentions that at the end, he wants you to know that he is first and foremost a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of patience, a God of forgiveness, a God of overflowing and persevering love, and he's a God of justice. I told you this sermon is called The Mountain of Grace. Could there be a, a, a greater revelation of God's grace here? We see Moses intercedes, and we get a picture of Jesus. Moses intercedes again, we get another picture of Jesus, another picture of Jesus. And here we see the grace of God on full display. And we see that the, go- the glory of God here is not this ablazing fire, but it's an ablazing grace. And that's something that we need to remember in the Old Testament, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of a blazing grace. And maybe we should make a really big banner and put that on that or something. Well, it's up there. God is a God of a blazing grace. So what would happen in our own lives personally if we got to experience a revelation of God like Moses did? What would happen in our lives if we went, took the next step in a deeper, more personal, more intimate connection with Jesus? What would take place in our lives? And I want to suggest that there's two primary things that are going to take place in our lives. And this is where, remember I said, said at the beginning, there's an important principle that I want you to take home from this that I believe is one of the most important lessons that we can learn. And to discover the first one, we're going to see what happens to Moses immediately after this takes place. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 8 and 9. So just after Moses shows up in all his glory, declares his character, it says, And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. I want, you, I want us to contrast the first time, well, the, it's actually the second time Moses intercedes on behalf of his people and this experience here. In the first case, it says, Moses said, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. After he gets a revelation of the character of God, he says, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Do you notice the difference there? Who's the sinner? In the, first, in the first case, we see Moses sees himself as being the faithful one, and he sees all those other Israelites as those stiff-necked sinners that need atonement. And Moses is so bold to think that my life is good enough that I can give my life in exchange for the life of these people. That never would have brought atonement because Moses was a sinner as well. But from his perspective, when he looked and compared himself to them, he was, he was in the right and they were in the wrong. But after God get, Moses gets this huge picture of the glory of God, it says, and pardon 
our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. The first thing that happens when we behold the beauty of God's glory, we behold his character, is that we become convicted of the sin in our own life. By beholding, we become convicted. And it makes sense because when you compare yourself to someone else, let's say you've been on the Christian journey for a little, a little while, God's been working a, a work of transformation in your life, and then you compare yourself to all these, these new believers around you, and you think, whoa, I'm pretty good in comparison to them. If our eyes are fixed on the people around us, it's quite possible that we could have a high sense of our own moral worth and our right standing before God. However, when you get a larger picture of the glory of God and of His character and you compare yourself to Him, suddenly Moses falls on his, on his face and says, Lord, forgive our iniquity and our sin. It says in the book Steps of Christ, page 64, The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. For your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to His perfect nature. So if you're feeling pretty almost perfect, if you're feeling like you've got things pretty much together now, what does that probably say about your own condition with God? Could it be that you are the furthest from him? It says on, on the next page, it says, but if we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and the excellence of Christ. It doesn't matter who we are. If we get a glimpse like Moses did of the true beauty and character of Christ, and we compare ourselves with him as opposed to those people around us, we too will be overwhelmed that we fall short of the glory of God. Point number one. Point number two. When Moses walks down from the mountain, this is what happens. But chapter th- 34 and verse 29. It says, When Moses came down from, the mount, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, this is the new two tablets, okay? After spending another 40 days and 40 nights with God on the mountain, with his glory, after saying, show me your glory, and God's showing up. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. What happened to Moses when he came down? His face it was like it was on fire. I don't know what exactly it looked like, but it was this, this bright light that was radiating from the face of God. And remember, God, Moses says, God, show me your glory. God shows up, shows his glory, which is primarily his character, but also would have included the great light show that was going on as well. Moses comes down from there, and he is reflecting the character of God, and he doesn't even realize it. I remember when I was, at, when I was a young kid at, at Big Camp, for those who know what Big Camp is, they had these big um, canvas tents, kind of like circus tents, and I used to go and buy one of these little um, things, little like bouncy balls from the, from the little shop there, and we'd throw them up on the tents, and they'd go up and they'd come back down. But then we were wanting to do it at night, so we went and bought these glow-in-the-dark bouncy balls. Okay? And so we, that way we could see them going up, and if they went off a long way into the grass, we could hopefully find them. 
However, what we found was that pretty soon these bouncy balls started to get pretty dark as well, and we couldn't see them, these glow-in-the-dark bouncy balls. So what we would do, we'd go and find a really bright street light or something, and we would hold that bouncy ball up in front of that light, allowing it to absorb the, the light from the, from, the, from the light rays from that light. Then we'd take that back out, and suddenly this bouncy ball was, was, was radiating a bright light again. And we'd take that, and we'd use it again, and then it would go dark again, and we'd take it back, and we'd put it back in front of that light, and it would um, start glowing again, and we'd take it back again. I believe that's an awesome illustration for the Christian experience. Here we see Moses, he's, he beholds the character of God, he beholds the glory of, of God, he sets himself in God's light, and he walks down from there, glowing as well. In 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, now this, 2 Corinthians 3 is building directly upon this story, and it says, and we all, speaking about all of us Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this tra- transformation into the image of God, this is not primarily talking about having a face that's shining with light. There's some instances where people had that, such as Stephen. But this is talking about God's glorious character. And when we spend time beholding the glorious character of God, we become glow-in-the-dark Christians. We absorb the glory of God, and sometimes we don't even realize that there's a transformation going in our lives as well. But when we go back into that dark world, people look at us and say, wow, there's something different about that person. By beholding, we become convicted, and by beholding, we become changed. The simple principle that I was talking about at the beginning is simply learning to behold Jesus, seeking an ever-deepening relationship with Him. But how do we do that? Final verse for you today is Exodus 24, verse 29. Exodus 34, verse 29, it says, When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Note those words, talking with God. The way that Moses was beholding God's glory was he firstly put him, he sought after and he placed himself in the presence of God. And then he spent time um, talking with God. Now, how do we do that as Christians? Well, it's very simple. We find time out of our busy lives to place ourselves in the presence of God, to daily place ourselves in the presence of God, and we spend time, just like Moses up on that mountain, talking with God. We talk to him through prayer. We listen to him through reading the scriptures. We have this conversation. We spend time connecting in a deeper way with God each and every day. And when we get up from that and we go into the world, we too will be shining lights in our community as well. And the process convicts, it it repeats itself over and over and over and over. The deeper we get to know Jesus, we become once again more convicted of our sin. And praise God that God's a God of grace and mercy. Because it's okay to be convicted of your sin when you have a God like that. And then through that connection with Him, we become changed step by step from one degree to another 
to ever-increasing degrees of reflecting God's glorious character. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, it's just amazing to know that we serve a God who's a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of patience, a God of forgiveness, a God of justice, a God of overflowing love and persevering love, Lord. And, and Lord, we just pray that, that you may help us to stay true to these commitments that have been made this morning, these commitments to commit ourselves, maybe for the very first time, or maybe recommitting ourselves to being people who behold you, Lord, who learn to spend time in your presence, learn to, learn to be people who are forever seeking a deeper connection with you. And Lord, we pray that, that you would um, give us experiences like Moses, Lord. Um, may you transform our characters, Lord, and often may it happen when we don't even realize. Lord, help us to be people who have the same sort of compassionate heart that you have. Lord, be with us through this week as we have all sorts of difficulties, Lord. Just pray that you help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly upon you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your intercession. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your salvation. And we thank you for life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.